Welcome to Driving Ahead, NADA's podcast about trends shaping the future of the automotive world. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Collegio. Hey guys, welcome to NADA's podcast, Driving Ahead. I'm Jonathan Collegio, and joining me today is Pulitzer Prize-winning author, global energy expert, and vice chairman of S&P Global, which you may know as the owner of Carfax and automotive mastermind, Daniel Jurgen. His new book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. It's been widely praised as a masterclass on how the world works, and I can attest, I read it last summer. It's an amazing, detailed read on global economics and politics. Daniel, welcome to the show. Very glad to be with you today. So, you know, we're obviously the automotive industry, and automotive is totally intertwined with energy. Whether we're talking about oil or gas or EVs powered by renewables or fossil fuels, your latest book spells out the changes in the energy industry over the last 20 years, where we're going in the next 20, and what those changes have done to global politics and the kind of global balance of power. Now, you specifically spent a lot of time focused on the importance of the development of the natural gas industry, and specifically fracking. The consequences here are just bigger, I think, than anyone can really grasp at first blush as to what fracking has really done to the global economy. Can you talk about that impact just for both the United States economy and global energy production? Well, first, for the United States economy, it's been a complete turnaround because the United States was the world's largest importer of oil. Now it's by far the world's largest producer of oil, producing more oil than Russia or more oil than Saudi Arabia. And one of the impacts of that is that so far, we've seen gasoline prices not spiking, even though you have a war going on in the Middle East, which normally would send prices up. And it's because you have this security blanket, the security buffer of US production. So it's been very important for the stabilization for automobile dealers, because of course, when prices go up, it affects car sales. So that's a very direct effect. Overall, it's affected the economy because we're not sending dollars overseas now. We're not sending hundreds of billions of dollars overseas. That's staying in our own economy. Jonathan, what's also turned out that it has a geopolitical significance that people don't realize. When Vladimir Putin shut off the natural gas to Europe, he assumed that that would cause the coalition supporting Ukraine to collapse. But what came to the rescue, what's called liquefied natural gas, LNG, and in the United States, that's made out of shale gas, which comes from this fracking revolution. And now the U.S. provides 40% of the gas that goes to Europe of the LNG. And so it's been a very important stabilizer for global politics. And also, it turns out, we're exporting energy. And our customers are not only in Europe. China, Japan, India are also customers now. And that's a bright spot in relationships, particularly with China, that are pretty difficult right now. In your book, you talked about opening up the market in Korea was one of the big moments in the Trump administration. Now, I don't want to go too deep on kind of the macro impact of this, but I mean, the impact here has been staggering. And you, you mentioned how going from an importer to an exporter, we were a net importer of oil and gas until just a few years ago. And the amount of money that we were spending on foreign produced energy was staggering. It was hundreds of billions of dollars that were flowing out of the US economy to purchase foreign oil and gas. So we're an exporter. And so instead of importing hundreds of billions of dollars of petroleum products, where we were basically flooding the global marketplace with dollars to buy those imports, the impact is that that increased supply of dollars would lower the price of dollars, would weaken the dollar. I mean, we were importing, what was it, 14 million barrels a day of oil in 2007 and 2008? Yeah, uh, one period, it was a huge part of our supply. And people thought, oh, that's going to continue forever. But then basically American ingenuity 
and entrepreneurial spirit in the face of a lot of skepticism just changed the picture. And as you say, the impact on our economy is so much larger than most anybody recognizes. So the dollar is probably, considering all the debt levels, it's had an impact on strengthening the dollar. But from going from being a net importer of a half a trillion dollars of energy to actually exporting energy, this is also a huge impact, not only on our own consumption, but also, as you mentioned, on the way that the world is kind of working. Because suddenly we're competing with these exports against other exporting nations. Yeah. And the fact that in the new map, I have a story about several years ago, well before the Ukraine war, I was at a conference in St. Petersburg, Russia, and about 3,000 people there. It was a big economic conference. Putin was speaking, and they told me, you asked the first question. And so I asked the question I was going to ask him, a typical question, your economy is over-dependent on oil and gas production. I mentioned shale, and he started shouting at me in front of 3,000 people. Let me tell you, it's very unpleasant to be shouted at by Vladimir Putin, who said shale is barbaric. And I realized afterwards the reason he didn't like this shale revolution is because, one, it meant that it would increase U.S. influence in the world and help the U.S. economy, and two, that ultimately shale gas, our shale gas, would compete with his gas that he exports, which is so important to his economy, and both those right to denounce it. But I have to say, being shouted at in front of 3,000 people, I kind of slumped down in my seat and, you know, looked around carefully before I left the hall. I can't even imagine that. Is that on video somewhere? I almost want to watch it. Well, I think it probably is, actually. Yeah. It's certainly vivid in my mind. (laughs) You have that that replay in your head. So people have kind of known for years that the Permian Basin, that the Bakken, Western Colorado had this shale, but they didn't really know how to extract it. Your book goes into detail about how they discovered the technology to extract gas and then oil for them. So without getting too many details, can you just talk about that? Well, it really comes down to entrepreneurship. And I think one of the qualities of entrepreneurship, and I think your members are entrepreneurs, and you have to sometimes be stubborn, and sometimes you have to go against conventional wisdom. And there was one particular man named George P. Mitchell, who was convinced that there was some way to get shale and then ultimately oil out of these rocks. And the textbook said it was impossible. He had a company called Mitchell Energy, it was a public company, but he controlled the stock. So they, people said, George, you're wasting your money. He said, it's my money. I'm going to waste it. It took 20 years. And then it just began very quietly. And then these sort of small independent, as they're called, smaller companies started to pick up on it. And the bigger companies, and now the biggest companies we see, the Exxons and the Chevrons, are now very big players in it in the United States. And it's led to a shift from global investment back to the United States. So All in all, this is dollars in people's pockets, and those are dollars that people spend on a lot of things like automobiles. So 20 years ago, the United States was not exporting gas to Europe. No, we were about to import it. That's amazing. But since the Ukraine crisis, what percentage of, so it's liquefied natural gas is going over on freighters. We're supplying how much? We were supplying 40% of the gas that Europe is importing to make up for the Russian gas. Okay, so Russia's exports are threatened. They need to go out and find a buyer because Europe is importing all this natural gas from the United States, and that strained the relationship over Ukraine. So Russia finds a new buyer in China, and that's kind of the spark that brought those two countries together, right? Well, I think they'd been getting together beforehand. Both President Putin and President Xi have toasted each other as best friends. And I was at one conference where I heard Putin say to Xi, we never spent enough time talking so they have a lot to talk about. But certainly this, basically the Ukraine war and the sanctions that Europe and the U.S. have put on Russia 
has meant that Russia has turned to China as the real market now and in the future for its natural gas, and certainly along with India as a market for its oil, because it used to sell half of its oil to Europe. It can't do that anymore. So we now have a divided world oil market where Russian oil goes to Asia and Middle Eastern oil that used to go to Asia now goes to Europe, and that applies to natural gas too. So basically, the war in Ukraine has accelerated this kind of deglobalization or this fragmentation of globalization that had been characteristic of the global economy for the last 30 years or so. But you know, China has its own designs for energy. They're less using Russian oil to power their cars and trucks. They're now promoting batteries. So can you talk about their transition and what they've been doing energy-wise? Absolutely. And that's obviously very important for the members of your association. You know, we think of electric cars as just being Elon Musk. And I do want to tell the story about how, because I've researched the story about how Elon Musk actually got into electric cars. But in China, there was a man named Wang Gang, who during the Cultural Revolution was sent to the countryside to work on a farm, a young man, but he was fascinated by engines and he kept taking apart a tractor engine and putting it back together. And then when the Cultural Revolution ended, he went to Germany, got a PhD, worked for Audi, and then he came back to China, what they used to call returning turtles. And he became a proponent of electric cars. And as early as 2000, he was proposing to the government that they go into electric cars. And China did do that sort of autonomously, independently of what was happening with Tesla. And they were doing it partly because of pollution, partly because they were importing more and more oil. And as we talked before, the U.S. was going down in terms of its oil imports. China now imports 75% of its oil. And that's part of the tension with the United States because they have to import it and they worry about the U.S. Navy if there's a conflict. But the other big factor is that China realized it could never be a player at the forefront of the conventional internal combustion global automobile industry. It was too late. The U.S. was there. Germany was there. Japan was there. Korea was there. So they saw electric cars as their way to get into the global market and get ahead of other competitors. And they put a lot of money and very strong incentives, very strong regulations. And today, at our latest numbers at S&P, is that 36% of the new cars sold in China today are electric vehicles. And they're promoting wind and solar. Half the wind turbines in the world, half the solar is built in China. Of course, China is also still building coal-fired plants as well because they need so much energy. But you know, if you look at this energy transition that people talk so much about, and you look at solar panels, you look at lithium-ion batteries, you look at processing of copper, you look at processing of other minerals, everything flows through China. Can you talk about the supply chain? Because I've asked a couple of automotive industry and China experts this question. The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which was the Biden stimulus package, is attempting to free battery production from the China supply chain. But I'm also hearing that this may not even be possible for a host of reasons. Part of it is mineral availability, but then part of it is also processing of those minerals and how energy intensive and how pollutive it is. Is it even possible to free batteries from the China supply chain? You know, I was asked the same question. I testified to the Senate Energy Committee about critical minerals. And every single question ended up being about China. And very much the question that's on your mind is on their mind. And I think that they were underestimating how hard it is going to be to disentangle from China for the reasons that you point out, which is not only the mining of the resource, you may mine the copper in Chile. Or you may mine the nickel in Indonesia, but where is it processed? It's processed in China. 
And that's an energy intensive with a lot of environmental questions around it. And we're not going to see the U.S. You can say I have 12 copper smelters. Now it has two operating. You're not going to see new copper smelters built in the U.S. So I think this notion that you can get away quickly from the supply chains that depend upon China is going to be challenging. The Biden administration took the lead in setting up the mineral security partnership with a lot of countries, European, Latin American, Japan, and so forth. But you just can't change the system overnight that's built up over 30 years. And China just has a dominant position in it which is one of the challenges in talking about the energy transition. All right. So it's almost like we go from this position of being a net huge importer of energy, and we get to the point around 2020 where we're basically energy self-sufficient. We're almost energy dominant at that point. But then at that exact moment, China kind of moves onto its own path of being energy independent and energy dominant through the battery supply chain. Yeah, I think, Jonathan, that's a really striking point and a very significant observation about a shift going on as this rushed energy transition without understanding the supply chains behind it. We had, when I was at that board meeting of the association, there was a prominent investment banker there who had been at what we call our Week conference, and he'd gone to the minerals session. And he said, you know, the automotive guys ought to go to these mineral sessions because the picture is very different when you look at it from the viewpoint of minerals and the demand that's going to be there. I mean, we did a study on copper, which is the metal of electrification, saying if you're going to meet the goals that a Biden administration or the EU has by 2050, world copper production has to double by 2035. By the way, it takes 20 years to open a major new mine. So there is a disconnect between the policies and the supply chains that are meant to support those policies. So I was talking to Michael Dunn, who's a China expert. He used to be the head of General Motors in Indonesia. And he says that China is on the path to having the capacity to produce 45 million new vehicles a year. That's half, half of the entire global new sale auto supply could be produced by China. And so what's happening is they're basically turning on these factories. And now they're starting to push their products into markets like Mexico all around China, Vietnam, Cambodia, the ring countries around there, as basically a way to leapfrog ICE and then having its own dominance in EVs through their own supply chain. BYD, which was this company that didn't even produce full-scale automobiles 20 years ago as a supplier, is now the second largest EV producer in the world. What's going on there is striking. That, I think, is, in fact, if you open your eyes, that's what's happening I saw a statistic that 20% of the new cars in Mexico now are Chinese. And one thing they'll do is push. I think that was third quarter, third quarter 2023. Yeah. As they continue to push EVs in China, they'll have the still capacity to produce conventional EC cars and sell them more cheaply in other markets around the world. So I think China is determined to be the dominant number one. Well, it is already the world's number one exporter of automobiles, and it intends to build in that position. And it comes off a very strong base. So from a geopolitical perspective, you spent a lot of time in your book, in the new map, talking about shipping routes and China asserting its dominance in the South China Sea and the disputes that it has with the Philippines and Vietnam. Are all of these potential triggers for war? I mean, obviously tensions are heightened, but if you're a policymaker, what do you do to keep peace and to keep things from kind of spiraling out of control? Well, I think that question is very much on the agenda today with the issues about the attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, which a very significant part of world commerce passes through the Suez Canal and through the Red Sea. 
not only energy, but container ships, automobiles. So I think that sort of brings it home. But I do focus on the South China Sea, which most people pay no attention to, but about a third of world trade flows through it. China has said that it owns it. The rest of the world says it doesn't own it. It's the open seas. And China says, well, tough, we own it. And I think you have to be concerned about, quote, an accident, because this is where U.S. Navy and the Chinese Navy, the U.S. Air Force and the Chinese Air Force come closest to collisions, and you could have events happen there. So I think the risk is there that we move from an era in in the new map, I call it the WTO consensus, the notion that we were all in it together, globalization, we, China, everybody was benefiting to this new era of great power competition, rivalry, which grows more intense. And I think, you know, what you try and do is maintain channels of communication so that at least, and now it's been restored again, our military can actually talk to the Chinese military in case some incident happens. But managing U.S.-Chinese relations is the number one geopolitical issue for the 21st century. And when part of the challenge is that people don't understand how integrated our economies have actually become. And minerals is a very good example of that. So it isn't like the competition with the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union was not a player in the world economy. China is the other major player in the world economy, and we're highly connected at the same time that we're highly competitive. Yeah, it's tricky. They can't just shut off Chinese exports by raising a tariff because General Motors and some of the other American companies are producing electric and you know battery and components over there that they're re-importing into the United States and the AFTA countries, et cetera. We see that problem with the regulations that put an effect on batteries for EVs. It, I think it slashed in half the number of EV models that would qualify for the full tax credits. This concept of entities of foreign concern, which means China is now going to have a lot of impact on our economy and it's going to have a lot of impact on the U.S. automobile industry and the U.S. auto market. One of the things you mentioned in the book is how usually energy transitions take a very, very long period of time, going from burning wood to burning coal, then coal to petroleum and so on. In the automotive industry, there's this relentless shift from gasoline toward batteries, and the speed is staggering. We're talking about moving from like 1% global EV in 2020 to 67% is the current proposal by the EPA for the United States in 2022, EV or zero emission vehicles, which will likely be battery electric. Has anything like this ever been done before? I asked, you know, the preeminent energy historian. Well, no, I mean, I got very interested in that question because everywhere I go, I'd hear about the energy transition. So one of the parts I really recommend that people read in the new map is the section on energy transitions. I even pick a date it began, which was January of 1709, when an English metal worker figured out you could make iron better using coal than wood. But these transitions took 100 years. So oil discovered in Western Pennsylvania in 1859, oil overtakes coal only in the 1960s as the number one energy source in the world. But today, the world uses three times as much coal. And last year, we used more coal than it's ever used before. So it was energy transitions. A, as you say, took a long time and were really energy additions. Here, you're trying to go from A to B in a very short time. By 2035, no more ICE cars sold on the road, only EVs. And I think the automobile dealers of the world and of the United States are feeling one of my the key arguments that I would make about these energy transitions that you don't just change the whole industrial structure in a matter of 10 or 15 years. It's very hard to do that. And of course, the auto dealers are feeling a lot of the pressure now that's coming from policy. And one of the things I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal 
saying how California had passed a new regulation that every car sold in the state by 2035 has to have two and a half times more copper. It didn't actually said that. It said they had to be EVs, but an EV is two and a half times more copper. Well, if that's happening in the US and it's happening in China and it's happening in Europe, where's the copper going to come from? So I think that this notion that you just can have a linear energy transition and that you can just tell everybody 2035, be ready for it, all EVs, it's going to be very challenging. And you can see that the US automobile makers are now struggling with the realities. You look at China, 36, 37% new cars, EVs. Europe, about 26%. In the US, about 10%, but only about half of that is through dealers. The other half is through direct sales by Tesla and so forth. It's a very different uptake. And I mean, I said there are really kind of four big challenges to the energy transition. Number one is just the scale of what people are trying to do, and that's what the automobile industry is facing. Secondly is the importance of energy security as Europe. You know, the Germans never thought they would import LNG, liquefied natural gas from the US, but they are. Thirdly, in the developing world, they see things very differently. They want conventional energy. They want natural gas. They need oil because their per capita incomes are so much lower than the developed world. And then finally, it's this mineral question, Jonathan, that you've raised that, you know, to go from a fuel intensive to mineral intensive economy, suddenly the point that you made earlier is a very important one. It means that we may be energy dominant in terms of oil and gas. China's energy dominant, as you put it, when it comes to those minerals. You know, on the consumer side, what we're seeing in the dealership body is it's not really a market-driven shift to battery EVs. It's almost as though the EV solves a government problem, which is emissions, but it doesn't solve a consumer problem because the performance is basically on par with an ICE vehicle. In some respects, it's better. In some respects, it's not. But the infrastructure required for EVs is so vast. And for a customer who's not used to being able to have to charge their vehicle, they're used to being able to basically recharge their vehicle in three minutes at a gas station. Suddenly, their lifestyle has to fit into an EV instead of the car fitting into their lifestyle, which is what someone told me. I thought that that was a clever way to put it. One thing that people talk about way out in the horizon is hydrogen. And I wanted to talk about that with you for a moment. Everyone seems to love it in part because if you can manufacture it using renewables, you've basically created a 100% green energy source. But when I talk to energy folks, they seem to say, well, hydrogen is 30 years in the future. But I feel like 30 years ago, they were saying, oh, it's 30 years in the future. Like, where is hydrogen in this energy ecosystem that we're talking about? I think the difference is that there is a lot of money and effort going into it because it's a way to say, well, you have electrons, electricity, EVs, but hydrogen is a molecule and that an industry that's used to using molecules, which is the oil and gas industry, can shift in that direction. And so you see some very big incentives in this Inflation Reduction Act for that. You see other countries going that. So there's been a lot of excitement about hydrogen. But the question that you always get is, where's the market for it? You still need to create a whole new infrastructure for it. You can't just put hydrogen into a conventional car. So I think now you're trying to build up these hydrogen hubs, but I think hydrogen looks like it will play an increasing role. But I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be overnight in the way that people think, and it will be part of the energy mix. But you're going to need a lot of infrastructure and a lot of billions of dollars spent to create the market. The head of one of the national oil companies in the Middle East, I mean, I've heard him several times say, you know, we can produce hydrogen, but tell me where the market is. Tell me who's going to use it. So that's another example of the complexities of the energy transition when you're trying to just make it basically a policy-driven one and one in which a lot of government 
intervention. So if the transition wants to move toward low-carbon energy, you have renewables, and those have pluses and minuses, you know, nuclear, wind, solar. You have the hydrogen answer. There's also one of the things that comes up from time to time, and 15 years ago, there was a lot of criticism of his carbon capture, carbon sequestration. It was almost like a lot of people criticize the coal industry for even talking about it 20 years ago, but now Bill Gates is investing in it. Is there a path toward carbon capture that could, you know, basically remove enough carbon from the carbon that's burned off in a coal fire power plant? Or from emissions from automobiles. Sure. I think there are, you know, three ways. One is to store it. One is to capture it in terms of plants, trees, and so forth. And one is to find other uses for the captured CO2, for the captured carbon. And I think, that, again, in a way that wasn't the case before, there's serious effort that's going into it, serious money that's going into it. People are trying to figure out what's the business model. Because you can do a lot of these things, but the question is, can you do them at scale? So I think there's a kind of serious concerted effort around it. And if you look at even the UN reports on climate, they say, actually, you can't achieve your goals without carbon capture in some form. So you've got to put effort into it. You know, wind and solar, the modern wind and solar industry kind of began in the 1970s and 80s. They didn't become commercial till about 2010. So we're kind of at very early stages, both for a serious hydrogen industry and for a serious carbon capture industry. So we got to come back in five years and see where it's going. But a lot of effort and a lot of money and research is going into it in a way that wasn't the case before. So I first became acquainted with your writings with the prize. I read that in college. I highly recommend it, by the way, to the listeners out there. It's a history of the oil industry. It reads like a novel. It's amazing. And then you produced this amazing documentary series in the early 2000s, Commanding Heights. It was on PBS, and it was about this clash between market economies and government command and control economies. It was very pro-market. And I'm wondering how that came to be with PBS doing a pro-market documentary series in the early 2000s. Talk about that. I'm just fascinated by it. Well, I must say uh, it was a surprise for me too, but I had done the book with a co-author called The Commanding Heights, which was then the basis for the TV show. And I think maybe they felt they needed some, you know, it was brought balance to it. But I know people were skeptical. They say, how can you make a dramatic show, a documentary about economics and markets? I said, well, let's try. And we did, and I think we made it very cinematic. And I have to say, working, writing the book and then the TV show had a big impact on my own thinking because I really came away with a much more well-defined understanding of the dynamism and importance of market-oriented economies as opposed to state-controlled economies. So I really thought of the Commanding Heights as educational in a very broad way. People tell me they use it in their classrooms and so forth. And as I look now, we kind of see the pendulum swinging back towards more state control, more intervention. And I think it's a mistake because I think as a country, we do better with a dynamic private sector rather than a private sector that is more heavily controlled. Entrepreneurs, how you're talking about, you know, an entrepreneurial wildcat in Texas who's <laughs> out natural gas. But not only entrepreneurs, but business people and companies, large and small. As I understand, auto dealers today are feeling just in their business operations, a heavier hand of government than they did five or 10 years ago. And it's because there is this distrust in some sectors of the private sector uh, that people who are in positions of political power, intellectual power, are suspicious of the private sector. But that's the dynamism. And that's what gives the US the strength of its economy. And by the way, in the competition with China, 
it's the dynamism of the private sector that's going to be a very important competitive edge for our country. Now, your new book, The New Map, tell us, what was your goal there? What were you trying to communicate to the world for this new work? That's a very good question. You know, it's funny, you sort of write the book and then you have to write the introduction and conclusion and say, what is it exactly (laughs) about? And what I was trying to do was saying how the world energy map and the map of energy and geopolitics, because in my mind, that's where my specialty is, is the interaction of the two of them. How has it changed? And we talked earlier about the impact of, of the shale revolution, but also the focus on energy transition, the changes we've seen in the automobile industry, and the fact that this kind of embrace of a globalized world economy in which the U.S. was a leader, that that doesn't exist anymore. You know, when we had the global financial crisis in 2008, the U.S. and China really cooperated very closely to get us out of it. COVID came along, no cooperation at all. I mean, the breakdown and that sense, you know, it was that China said, well, we benefit from this global order. Now they say, well, we want to create a new order. And so I think we're in a much more challenging period now. And I wanted to capture that too, that that we've moved from a different era and we have to think about the risk and understanding. You know, I also wanted to tell some very good stories. I love storytelling, and that's one of the qualities that I wanted to have in the new map as well. It comes across in your writing. You know, you've had an amazing career, Pulitzer Prize winner, you've advised presidents, you had Vladimir Putin yell at you. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> I should put that in my resume. <laughs> but you started, you started as a journalist in Los Angeles, right? And then you had this major shift in interest. What did that look like? I was torn between actually kind of a journalist, one kind as a writer, or being an academic. And then I, what basically happened is I had a postdoctoral fellowship after I did my PhD, did my PhD at Cambridge University and came back at a postdoc at Harvard. And I had this great advantage for two years. No one was supervising me so I could do what I wanted. And I just became obsessed with the energy business and the energy politics and how it tied into overall geopolitics. And then I was offered a job at the Harvard Business School. I said, well, I really ought to take that because that's a mistake they may not make again. So I better take it. And we did a book there called Energy Future. And that was kind of really the beginning of my career. And then came the prize. But at the same time, I started writing the prize. I started a business. And I think that affected the texture of the prize because I understood, you know, people who sometimes write about business think that people have a lot of time to make decisions, have all the information, and kind of know where things are going to come out. And of course, all of your members know you don't know that. And I think that sense of contingency and and making bets on the unknown was something that I was able, because of my own experience, to convey in what I'm writing as well. So, but you know, I started our company called Cambridge Energy Research Associates with one other person, and today we're part of S and B Global, which has forty thousand people in it, and that's something I never expected. And so, I guess I'm unusual being somebody who has a Pulitzer Prize but actually works in the private sector. That's one of the things they don't teach you if you open a business is just how awash in uncertainty and emotions it is, not knowing what's next, curveballs that are thrown that you could never possibly anticipate, just having to wake up and having to deal with it. Yeah, and timing. Timing could work for you or against you. But the prize, because I was also starting running a business, I was five years late in delivering the book, but it came out during the Gulf War, the early 1990s. And in two weeks, it went to number one in the bestseller list. And I have to tell you that I thought a book that was kind of, favorable towards capitalism, I thought it actually couldn't win a Pulitzer Prize. 
And I thought it had another thing going against it too, because it was called the prize. And I was pretty stunned when the phone rang and it told me that I'd gotten a Pulitzer Prize. What are people not talking about right now that they should be talking about? What's going on under the radar that's underreported that we haven't talked about today? Well, I think we've talked about some of the things that are underreported. I think that one thing, you know, it was 50 years ago, the oil crisis, and there was a lot of comparisons about then and now. But one of the things that was happening then was the U.S. government was dysfunctional and deeply divided politically. And I think that's the case today. And I think the lesson of 50 years ago, and we'll see it's a lesson of today, is the world's a more dangerous place when basically Washington is dysfunctional. And to me, that's something that weighs on my mind in a serious way. There's some things that there's no shortage of discussion, the impact of AI and digital things. You know, I think that kind of breakdown of globalization and what the consequences will be, what it will mean for inflation, things like that, are not fully understood or focused on either. So those are some of the things that are, are on my mind. One of the things that we always ask our guests, what was your first car and what was it like? And do you have a favorite car currently? Well, my first car was a used Volkswagen station wagon, which I brought from a, an associate professor at MIT. And I remember I bought it and he said to me, I said, oh, gosh, I now own a car. And he said, well, now you have some personal property. So uh, <laughs> that was the first car. We live in the zip code <laughs> where people own a lot of Volvos and we own, we own a Volvo. Obviously, thinking about what the next car will be and kind of leaning towards a hybrid, I think, is what I'm thinking about. But I'm open to advice. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I want to extend a huge thank you to our guest, Daniel Jurgen, for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review and tell a friend. This has been Driving Ahead from NADA. I'm Jonathan Collegio. Until next time, we'll see you on the road. This podcast was produced in partnership with Amaze Media Lab.